him. We talk about some pretty heavy topics on the show. And in addition, you deal with challenging issues every day in your position. In the last few years, folks involved in advocacy have started asking questions about sustainability and self-care. For myself, one thing that sustains me is caring for my plant children. Singing to them, talking to them, and feeding them helps me to de-stress and recenter. So I'm wondering for you, what are some sustainability practices that you engage in? Hmm. Well, I often think having children for me grounded me in a way that I probably would have been working round the clock still if I hadn't had children. Now they're grown, so sometimes exercise, hiking, that sort of thing. Uh, an indication that I haven't been doing as much is I've gained 20 pounds since I came to the Senate, so clearly I'm not great at it. And um, I mean, one of the things for me has always been whatever issues I may be having, and this is not necessarily a helpful way to sustain, is I know that other people are having way harder times. And so uh, that will usually help sustain me moving forward, even when I may feel tired or, um, you know, a bit beleaguered. But the reality is, and, you know, anybody listening now would say, oh my God, she's in such a privileged position now as a senator. How could she not be able to sustain herself? And so, you know, I think those are very good questions. But, uh, yeah, we all have to take care of ourselves and the, the people we care about, and that's part of it. And for me, the people we care about is uh, an increasingly big circle. Okay, I'm feeling ready to jump in. Today we're talking about mandatory minimum sentences, why they don't make sense, and what we're doing about it. Kim, can you explain why mandatory minimum sentences are unfair? When you first hear if everybody, anybody who'd commit some offense should get the same sentence, on the surface, that sounds like it would be fair in a formal equality sort of way. But when you think of equality, you have to think of, does everybody start at the same place? Are all the circumstances the same? Are all the situations? Does the, the whatever behavior impact everybody equally? And it doesn't, obviously, depending on who the person is, depending on what they've done, to whom, and what the long-term consequences are can be very different. So mandatory minimum penalties create this illusion that we're creating a more fair system when in fact we're not. And the evidence of that is we see more people who are racialized in the prison system, poor people, people who can't afford to challenge um, those areas. And an example of the only mandatory minimum that is routinely litigated is impaired driving because people of relative more means and power uh, and resources um, are charged with that. And so they, you know, there's an alternative. The, if you can pay for treatment and the Crown agrees to that, you can actually go to treatment. Very few people who don't have a lot of resources or means or lawyers to argue that would have that option. And so um, it's really, you know, what we're trying to do here through a bill, um, a new law we're trying to get through called Bill S-251 is to allow judges the discretion to not impose mandatory minimum sentences or penalties. And really, this wasn't an original idea. Um, it's something that's been done in the UK for many years. Uh, it's something that Erwin Kotler, when he was a member of parliament, proposed. And so we just basically picked up the work that he, w he had done um, and, and updated it and have put it forward as a proposal. And it's before the Senate Standing Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs right now. Yeah, one thing I'm not sure all Canadians know is that senators can write their own private members' bills. Do you think you can explain that for folks who might not understand the process, Kim? 
So when um, one of the things we can do is there it's called a private members bill. It's available to members of parliament in the House of Commons as well as senators in the Senate, and you can develop a bill. You work with the law law clerks and develop the legislation. You can propose it. Um, obviously, we could propose all kinds of bills, and you know many are that deal with all kinds of different issues. Uh, but you then require the support of your colleagues to actually get it pass first reading, second reading, and to committee, be considered by committee, come back for third reading, and then once it's passed in the Senate, it would go back to the House of Commons to go through the same process. And then um, if it's passed, it could be ratified. And so there are a number of private members' bills that have come through recently. Um, one was on O Canada, the changing the words to O Canada. Another was on uh, cetaceans, breeding dolphins and whales and orcas and things in captivity. So there's all kinds of private members' bills have been brought forward. And two that I was working on, um, when I well, some issues I was working on before I came to the Senate were mandatory minimum sentences and the removal of pardons, and, and so those are two that I'm working on. Uh, longer term, also working on things like guaranteed livable income and um, free health care, pharmacare. There are other groups working on that as well, so we're working in conjunction with things like the Anti-Poverty Caucus and, and um, some of the groups in, in both the, mem- the House of Commons and the Senate who are interested in some of these same issues. So, say I was accused of, say, drug trafficking. What would Bill S-251 do for me? Well, it would provide, if, if passed, it would provide the opportunity for the Crown to consider not imposing a mandatory minimum penalty or your lawyer to argue that the judge not, if the Crown was wanting to pursue the mandatory minimum, for your lawyer to argue why in the circumstances it shouldn't apply to you and for the judge then to exercise her or his or their discretion to not impose a mandatory minimum penalty. And so as, you know, simple as that, really. In the criminal code, it says that the fundamental principle of sentencing is that the sentence must be proportionate to the gravity of the offense and the degree of responsibility of the individual. Why doesn't this criminal code provision align with mandatory minimum sentences as they exist right now? Well, one of the main issues is that this basically says that you're actually supposed to weigh the considerations in each case according to the the person impacted, um, the person who is accused or per, of perpetrating an act, as well as those who are impacted by the act. A mandatory minimum penalty doesn't do that. It just prescribes a certain approach. And some would argue that even a tariff system does does a similar sort of thing. And we're seeing that example right now in the the case that's unfolding in Saskatchewan, where many people feel that although the tariff is between one and, uh, I believe it's one and a half years to three years for um, a dangerous driving causing death offense, because of a situation where so many young people were killed, um, the Crown is actually asking for a 10-year sentence. Do you mind explaining the tariff system for our listeners who aren't familiar? So tariff basically means that even though there's not a mandatory minimum penalty, there's been an established idea about what's an appropriate range of penalties for certain offenses. And um, really, I would argue that that also interferes with judicial discretion, as we're seeing in, in this case, as that I mentioned. And so there you see a situation where um, a man who, if he gets more than a six-month sentence, will be deported. So the, the consequences of a prison sentence for some people is far greater than for other people. 
Um, for anybody, it usually means an interruption of your life, your work, your uh, family. Uh, but for some people, it can mean if their immigration status isn't secure, it could mean they're they're kicked out of the country. It could mean that they um, they lose their housing altogether, their job altogether, all of those things. And one of the things we're not very good at doing is, and we're hearing it in in that situation, is taking into account all those views and looking at some other options, like what what actually would assist many of the family members of the young men who were killed and young woman who were killed um, in that car crash, have said that they know that Mr. Sidhu will live with, the, the man accused will live for the rest of his life with this horror, and it's clear he's remorseful. There's, there's nothing to be gained in terms of him or correcting his behavior, um, nor will it likely change what other people's uh, behavior will do, although there's this perception that long sentences deter other people from committing crime. All the research shows that that's not accurate. In fact, what deters is, one, people thinking they're going to be caught, so the certainty of being the behavior being found out, them knowing that it's wrong, and, um, and the swiftness of that happening. And so it really underscores how inappropriate sometimes the entire system is to try and deal with the incredible harm and hurt and grief that communities and individuals are facing. But mandatory minimum penalties have create this this illusion of equality, but in fact they they actually hamper the judge's discretion from uh, tailoring sentences to better meet the needs of all involved. So just to be clear, mandatory minimum sentences do not deter crime. No, I mean, e- even on the Department of Justice website, they'll say that the there's there's not clear evidence. In fact, I think there is pretty clear evidence, and the work that... Um, criminologists like Tony Dube and Cheryl Webster have done in this area have shown that. The fact that um, deterrence is not something, I mean, sometimes people will use drunk driving as an example, uh, but again, in the area of impaired driving, it's not the mandatory minimum penalties really made the difference. It's been the education, the change in social mores about what's acceptable, and it used to be acceptable to drink and drive, it's not anymore, and the certainty with check stops and things of being caught, and uh, then the penalties attached. But as I've already mentioned, it's also the most litigated area because people with means get charged with them. So are mandatory minimums a partisan issue? It certainly has been a partisan issue, but mandatory minimum penalties were brought in under both um, conservatives and the um, the liberals in terms of when they were in government. So it's been there's certainly was a proliferation over the last twenty years of mandatory minimum penalties, and and there certainly are some partisan components to it. For instance, when the the government, the current government, was running for office, as part of their platform, and was a, uh, an an agreement to look at mandatory minimum penalties, and arguably an agreement to get rid of mandatory minimum penalties because they supported the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommendations and uh, call to action number uh, 32 of the um, TRC was to actually eliminate mandatory minimum penalties, and so. So uh, I think there's widespread acceptance that we need to challenge it. When, when there is a high profile and, you know, a devastating case where some, there's been great loss, people are extremely concerned, understandably, about the monstrous act that someone has been accused of, 
often those are the times when people resort to talking about let's have more penalties because the only standard really available in our criminal law in many cases to say how seriously we take the loss of a person or the harm caused to people is how long a sentence we give people and that's the wrong standard I would suggest that what we really should be doing is saying what is the what is the appropriate penalty that can best if if it's a penalty that's needed that can best register how do we actually make note of the harm done, do our best to try and remedy that, even though our system's not set up to do that, and then do what we can to prevent that person from being in the situation again or other people from being in that situation. And if we really wanted to do that, that requires a whole lot of other economic and social justice issues to be addressed that, in truth, we're not willing to address. We, we go to... Uh, when I say we, because I'm part of the entire community, but the resort is to the length and severity of the sentence as though that somehow is a marker of the value of the the lives of the victims or the harm that's done or something else, when in fact we know that those lengthy punitive sentences can only wreak more destruction and havoc in people's lives and really don't, don't actually do anything to assist the victims in the long term even in the short term, I would argue. Can you describe the -the on-the-ground impact of mandatory minimum sentences for us? So one one of the real challenges is a lot of people can appreciate this issue when you start to talk about, you know, what happens in individual cases. And so we all know that women are told all the time we're responsible for how we dress, how we walk, where we walk, what time. And so one of the, one of the big myths and, and stereotypes about violence against women is that women have some control over it. And women hear that who are in abusive relationships all the time. And they're essentially given the message repeatedly by police not responding or communities not responding or families saying, you know, you made your bed, you lie in it, um, getting the message that they are essentially deputized, they're responsible for protecting themselves and or their children. And so many of them do that in all kinds of ways that involve no violence for many, many, sometimes for short times, sometimes for longer periods. In most cases where women have ultimately used force that ends up being lethal force, they're in a desperate situation where after the fact they will say, I I can't tell you how many times I've heard after the fact, well, I deserve to be punished because... I should have done something else. I should have figured out. And they hear all these messages. Why didn't you leave? Why didn't you fight back? Why? And when they do fight back or when they do respond, um, it's usually in a moment of desperation where it isn't like they have a whole array of other options available to them in that moment. And oftentimes it can be one stab. It can be, or it can be a frenzied um, a, a trying to get away and they grab a weapon that uh, his gun or a knife in the kitchen or a frying pan and and so in the moment when you go back and you say in the moment what else could you have done most times they can't think of anything else they could have done but they are also so socialized to believe that somehow it's still their fault that two things happen they when they go before the courts that gets reinforced that somehow they weren't entitled to preserve their own lives or the lives of their children. And so they participate to some extent in that by feeling guilty and taking responsibility. Uh, But the other part is that there's no discretion or there's often 
limited discretion because if the charge is a murder charge, uh, then the, the Crown, all that they have available to them is to decide whether to proceed first degree or second degree. We would argue, um, I would argue, that Crown should have, at that moment, should be taking and really look, examining the circumstances and saying, should one, should we even be charging? Was this really a self-defense case? And should we not be charging at all? Where they don't take that opportunity and exercise their discretion and proceed, then I want judges to have the opportunity after they hear it. Because in most cases um, where women are, have been convicted of violent offences, it's almost always reactive. It's not always defensive, but it's almost always reactive. And yet they get subject to, if they, they tend to not be of the same size, if it's an abusive relationship or power or resources available to them as the person who may have been battering or abusing them, and so they're more likely to be charged with using a weapon, which is seen as an aggravating factor, more likely to implicate them as somehow worse than the man who strangles someone with his hands or beats them with his fists. And so all of those, I think we have to take a very serious look at those areas. And part of the, what the bill's trying to do is where, where the, the police have not responded, where the Crown has not exercised discretion, allowing the judge to use their discretion to then apply the most appropriate penalty because in most of those cases the women will plead guilty for a couple of reasons. One, they don't believe they'll be believed and that's been the history they've experienced and when if in they have reported in the past and remember that 91% of the indigenous women, 87% of women overall are in custody have histories of abuse so they know that what happens when they tried to report. Secondly, if they do um, want to have a trial, they then hear that the, the likelihood is that they're going to be serving life in prison and unless they mount this defense. And if there's no witnesses, the whole issue of they're not going to be believed comes up again. So oftentimes in that moment, Crowns will then, if they know there's been a history of abuse, will offer a plea to an individual. And so they may plead to manslaughter. So some people would say, well, that's a good, that's a good outcome. My response is, no, it's not a good outcome if it really shouldn't have been a charge in the first place and it should have been recognized as self-defense or defense of other. And if there is a witness, and that's what happened in a, you know, a few cases where there have been acquittals because they did go to trial, interesting that in each of those cases the children were called by the Crown thinking it would help implicate the woman because of myths and stereotypes around that. But in most cases, if a woman knows that the, the key to her having um, corroborating evidence that she was abused is her children, she usually won't agree to them being called because to put them through what they've already experienced in real life, now to have them re-victimized on the stand, many mothers will refuse. And so we have this horrendous experiences of, you know, for women in particular, but then there's also other issues for, uh, for men, for young people, um, and again, depending on the degree of uh, marginalization and oppression people experience, the, the, it mounts even higher the challenges of mandatory minimum penalties because when we look at who's in prison for, as a result of mandatory minimum penalties, we d see disproportionately racialized men, women, poor men and women, and those who are, you know, have struggled previously with histories of challenges, whether it's abuse, mental health, addictions, and on and on. So this is, the bill is really attempting to, in a, you know, and, and there have been many critics of it, rightfully so, that we should have actually gone back and let's take out a bunch of these mandatory minimum penalties. Um, 
and quite frankly, I, I just, you know, a number of us saw this as a way to do something to move in that direction. It doesn't mean we still shouldn't have a law commission or a sentencing commission look at all of those things and take them out, but as a, as a, a first step to allow judges the discretion to not impose mandatory minimum penalties was seen as one way to try and alleviate this. Senator Pate believes that judges are best positioned to decide whether a mandatory minimum should or shouldn't be applied in any given case. Courts are increasingly ruling mandatory minimum penalties unconstitutional and disproportionate. Two Supreme Court cases and at least 10 decisions from provincial courts of appeal have struck down various provisions of the criminal code as a result of unconstitutional mandatory minimum penalties. In 2016, in the case of R. v. Lloyd, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down a provision of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act that imposed mandatory minimum sentences for drug trafficking on the basis that it prevented judges from examining the particular circumstances of individual cases. TLDR, mandatory minimum sentences are probably unconstitutional. Many of us know that mandatory minimum sentences disproportionately affects Indigenous accused and contributes to the mass incarceration of Indigenous peoples in Canada. For more on this, we spoke with Pam Palmater. Okay, so my next guest is well-known in all activist circles across Canada and across the world, really. So Pam Palmater is a Mi'kmaq citizen and member of the Eel River Bar First Nation in northern New Brunswick. She is a practicing lawyer and is currently an associate professor and the Chair in Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University. Pam has been studying, volunteering, and working on First Nations issues for over 25 years, and is the author of two books on Indigenous identity and Indigenous nationhood. You can find links to both of her books and her website in the show notes. So please, listeners, give your attention to Pam Palmater. Pam, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm pretty excited to be here. So you actually have your own podcast, don't you? And it's called Warrior Life. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, well, it's it's something that's new um, because I've been doing social media for quite some time. You know, all the Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, all that kind of stuff to get people more in a print fashion. And then I transitioned to YouTube and people were really responding to YouTube. But interestingly enough, I hadn't even thought about podcasts. And then my kids who um, are always the ones who are telling me what to do and what not to do in terms of social media (laughs) said, mom, you know, most of us at the gym, we're not watching YouTube and we're certainly not listening to radio. You should podcast because while we're working out at the gym or driving or hanging out with her friends we're always listening to podcasts so I thought well okay I'll I'll try that and um but I I didn't actually want to limit it to just political issues because I think there's so much more to indigeneity and what it means to be you know a part of a first nation community than just the politics and the challenges so I thought well let's make it about warrior life which is you know decolonization also on a personal level what does it mean to you know, eat right and work out and and face all of these challenges, but do it together and support communities and, you know, um, and, and really highlight some people who are doing great work, people who are leaders themselves. So it's a new podcast. It's really just getting started. But um, I have a great lineup of people to talk to who are, 
you know, being warriors on the ground, warriors in, you know, in their profession and, 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 you know, people like Senator Kim Pate who are being, you know, warriors in, in now the Senate, but had, you know, spent so many years on the outside being a warrior for people and really standing up for social justice. And I think we need to do more of that. Right. Actually, you talk a lot about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's call to action and what Canada can do to do right by Indigenous people in Canada. So one of those calls to action, today we're talking about mandatory minimums, and one of the calls to action was for the federal government to allow judges to depart from mandatory minimum penalties. So why is this call to action important to you? Well, I think it's important for lots of reasons because uh, so many people are, you know, jumping to reconciliate the superficial parts of reconciliation, things that don't take much effort or any substantive change, like changing the name of a building, changing the name of a sign. And 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 while some of those things are, you know, um, symbolically important, they don't do anything to get people out of prison, for example, or get kids out of foster care. And so, um, you know, the the recommendations around removing or or allowing judges the discretion to depart from mandatory minimums is critical because for especially for Indigenous peoples because of the exceptionally high rates of over-incarceration, which we know are due in large part not just to the historical legacy of colonization, but also the current discriminatory laws and policies and um, state actions against Indigenous peoples. They're arrested more, charged more, you know, held without bail more, uh, held without parole more. So we know that racism is a real issue in Canada and especially in the justice system that, you know, tweaking around the edges, just just being aware of racism isn't enough to end it for Indigenous people. So we need um, mechanisms for, you know, for judges and a, and a whole lot of other people to be able to use discretion to make decisions that account for the racism that put the First Nation person or accused before them uh, for things like sentencing. And and I also feel, you know, aside from truth and reconciliation, that the whole concept of mandatory minimums is really antithetical to our, our justice system, which is supposed to give judges the freedom to decide what's right in the circumstances. Where will we actually see justice? And and of course, prison is, is not... Um, uh, justice, it's a different kind of measure. But for Indigenous peoples, after the, I, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada cases in Gladue and Ipili, which said, look, there are so many problems, systemic problems and, and uh, this high rate of over-incarceration that judges are supposed to look at alternatives to prison for Indigenous peoples. Well, how right. can they look at alternatives if they have a mandatory minimum sentence? So mandatory minimums conflict with Supreme Court of Canada judgments, but it also conflicts with, um, you know, the whole truth and reconciliation and a new relationship with Indigenous peoples and trying to undo some of the harm that's been done both historically and presently. Right. So I think, you, I mean, you touched on this a little bit, but so why are mandatory minimum sentences particularly unfair in the context of Indigenous accused and perhaps people that you know um, and are in relation to? 
Well, to, uh, I'll just use a, a very simple example, and it's used a lot. Think of, you know, a bunch of guys, young men, you know, in their 18, 19, 20, and they're partying at their frat house because, you know, they're all university kids and they all hang out together and they get too drunk and they go streaking down the street or they cause mischief and trouble. What happens to these guys? Uh, if they get stopped by the police, they're often driven home to their parents and said, hey, hey, tell him to sleep it off and behave in the morning. Um, if that was an Indigenous person who, due to addictions or things that have happened to them in their lives and are living homeless on the street but are intoxicated, that person is far more likely to be arrested and imprisoned and charged and then have other charges uh, laid on top of that because they're in a prison situation and have to defend themselves in prison. So there, there's a very clear racism uh, between how Indigenous peoples are treated and how non-Native people are treated that brings them, that brings the police into conflict with them to begin with. And then the police are essentially the feeder, you know, the feeder mechanism of this pipeline of, of Indigenous peoples you know, living on the streets, precariously housed, suffering from addictions, uh, living lives of poverty. They're like this pipeline facilitated by the police to the court system. Right. And so mandatory minimums, um, especially when you're talking about things like um, tobacco offenses or cannabis offenses or any of these other things, um, is particularly unfair to Indigenous peoples who are far more likely to have to appear before a judge because of the you know, racism in policing to begin with. So if we can just get a handle on some of that, we could start reducing some of the numbers of people who are being incarcerated. Right. Yeah, I remember um, in my first year criminal law class, we were asked to go to court and reflect on the, some of the things we saw. And one case that one of my colleagues saw was an Indigenous accused who had been, you know, intoxicated, I believe, at, at nighttime and was at a food truck. <laughs> and the food truck was taking far too long to, you know, these are the facts that we had been offered. The food truck has ta was taking too long to give them their food. And so the person, you know, banged on the door and told them that they needed to give them their food or else. And this person's case was in court. And I'm sitting there like, really? How many times have we seen any other non-Indigenous person, you know, get upset because food is taking too long and, and they didn't catch a charge? Oh my goodness. Oh my, in airports, in restaurants, I have seen on many, many occasions people being horrible and loud and belligerent and I would even say aggressive and threatening because mm -hmm. they're late or their food didn't come right or anything and you never see the police called exactly if anything they're given their food for free exactly <laughs> but in this case it's so different and and th and that's the thing because if you we can't just look at it in terms of you know, so-called criminality, because there are, you know, there are people who don't know the facts who say, oh, well, Native people just be much be more criminals. We're talking about conditions of poverty. So we were at a protest in um, Winnipeg. We were protesting the over-incarceration rates of Indigenous peoples. And uh, one of the prison liaison people had come out and, and given us a tally for that day of how many Native guys were in the local prison 
for having stolen chocolate bars, pop, or chips from the local stores, and were literally sitting in prison, never been convicted uh, of the crime, hadn't had a chance to appear in court yet for stealing a chocolate bar. Mm. I mean, that's it's so it's hard. unbelievable. And that's not to say that there aren't other, you know, other issues and other crimes and things like that, but there's a whole lot of very poverty-related issues that are being addressed in a very racist and aggressive way for Indigenous peoples that that simply aren't for non-Native people. Absolutely. And, you know, I, sorry, this is a bit off, kind of off topic, um, but I do think it relates. So one of the reasons that I decided to go to law school was because, you know, as a Black woman in my community, there was a lot of issues that were facing my community that I felt like I needed the tools to address these issues when I felt like I could find some of those tools um, by getting a legal education and hearing you speak about these issues that are facing your community and, and the solutions to those issues. I wonder, what was your motivation for going to law school? Well, I mean, at the time, I was a single mom with two kids. So my primary motivation was, oh my goodness, I need to keep going to school to find a way to, you know, take care of my kids while at the same time um, combating these issues for Indigenous peoples because before law school, even before university, I had always been involved volunteering with um, off-reserve Native housing organizations or women's groups or, you know, political groups, anything really to try to advocate for social justice. And and in fact, I didn't even want to go to university because I thought I'm needed here on the ground. I need oh, to absolutely. spend all of my time advocating and, and school is going to be such a waste of time. And thank goodness <laughs> my family was like, yes, we need you on the ground and you can still do all this work, but I'm afraid all of these issues are going to be waiting for you when you're out of university. They're not going to have gone anywhere. Yeah. And so they said, you need to go. And and ultimately, when I was doing my undergrad, um, uh, Graydon Nicholas, who's a, a Maliseet man, uh, also called Wollastook, he ended up becoming the first Native judge in New Brunswick. Well, he taught a Natives in the Law course in a way that let us actually get at all the social issues, not just the court cases. And he really, he really, really, really encouraged me to go to law school because he said the more people that can link the social part of the justice system to the formal part of the justice system, that's how we make changes. Because if you just study the law, it's never going to happen. And I kind of really took that to heart and thought, well, I'm, I'm going to go to law school and really try to do just that, see where the law and knowing the law will help me in my social justice advocacy for Native people. For sure. Um, I hope it's okay if we circle back. So the next question I was wondering was about the current government. And and so they were elected on a platform that promised to implement the TRC's calls to action, including that they need to restore judges' discretion regarding mandatory minimum penalties. So, I mean, I haven't seen very much movement on this issue. Why do you think they haven't yet taken action? Well, I mean, it, it's always the question. So, and this isn't just a symptom of the current Trudeau government, although the current Trudeau government, you know, really needs to be held account because they made a lot of promises that they haven't kept and promises that aren't just about politics, aren't just about relationships, aren't just, 
you know, if we only focus on how many times the prime minister or his cabinet ministers meet with national Aboriginal organizations as the measure of reconciliation, then we're doomed because that does nothing to get people out of prison or kids out of foster care or clean water and sewer to First Nations, for example. And and I think it's it's especially disappointing because he did make the promises. He did put some of these promises into the mandate letters for all of the cabinet ministers. And for the first time ever, we had an Indigenous woman, Jody Wilson-Raybould, who used to be the uh, Minister of Justice. So you would expect that with those, you know, that commitment by this Prime Minister and an Indigenous woman as the Minister of Justice, that we would see real concrete substantive action. And in fact, we haven't. And really disappointingly, we've seen, you know, counter to that, like, you know, the the amendments uh, related to consent, for example, in sexual assault cases, right. you know, they didn't go through eliminating gender discrimination from the Indian Act. That didn't go through. You don't see the removal of these mandatory minimums or at least some kind of amendment to allow judges to depart from those mandatory minimums literally at every single opportunity. Oh, and also the, you know, the court making the core, core sterilization of Indigenous women, you know, against the law at every opportunity they've either voted against it or not taken the steps to do it. And right. so, although they're nicer and the the, um, the rhetoric has changed, which which is positive, you know, at least the public hears a government that's acting, um, making Indigenous issues more of a priority. In terms of the actual substantive law, things that'll make changes for people in prison, they haven't been forthcoming. And in fact, as we know, the over-incarceration rates continue to grow at astounding rates with no action being taken. And to me, the real measure of reconciliation is not how happy the leaders are on either side. It's what's happening to the people on the ground. Do they have clean water? Are they out of prison? Are their kids returned to them? Do they have some semblance of a good life? Um, the kind that was promised in the treaty relationship. And we're nowhere near that. We're, we haven't even taken those so-called important first steps to do that. Right. I'm wondering then, so we're talking about mandatory minimum sentences and how it leads to the over-incarceration of Indigenous people. There's definitely contingent of folks who think that if we make prisons just less bad, if we make them less damaging, if we make them more Indigenous, perhaps that would make it better. I'm wondering what you think about that. I'm wondering if you think that indigenizing prisons, like how does that relate to over-incarceration of Indigenous people? Yeah, so I mean, you literally hit the nail on the head. Real reconciliation has to be substantive, not only superficial. So uh, making sure that those who are incarcerated have access to elders and traditional ceremonies and sweats and teachings. That's important because we can't ignore the fact that there are tons of our people in prisons all over the country. So they should have access to their own culture. However, if it's just left at indigenizing, hiring more elders, bringing more sweet grass into prisons and, and setting up sweats in the middle of the prison yard, well, all we're doing is indigenizing the prison system 
and not getting people out of prison. The, the whole goal is to stop people from going into prison and, you know, decarcerating those who are there. And that's not going to happen by indigenizing the prison. What's what's going to happen is decarcerating people from prison. And until our focus is on decarceration and the prevention of incarceration, then we will never get around to real reconciliation. Our people need to be in our communities. They need to be they need to have wraparound supports. And until those mechanisms are in place, we don't have reconciliation. Right. So this podcast is super heavy. <laughs> We're always talking about, you know, the most challenging issues that are facing folks on the margins. And so I, I, I'd like to make sure that when we lead folks to a dark place, we also show them where the light could be. So what are some initiatives or moments that you'd like to share that demonstrate what folks in your community are doing to assert their sovereignty, strengthen their community bonds, and also heal from the damaging effects of colonization? Well, you know, I'm glad we're ending on this because that's the the bright light that most Canadians never see. It's so important that they see the issues that need to be addressed, but what they don't see are these bright lights all over the country where people, uh, guys who were formerly in prison or um, in regular conflict with the police have uh, made it their mission to, to help prevent other people from going into prisons by, um, you know, setting up their own community uh, support groups or acting as ment just informal mentors and advisors like not everything has to be done through an organization or an initiative or something like that and and I really see a lot of strength in those guys and similarly some of those guys are taking on the mission of actually acting on other issues like murdered and missing indigenous women so you see in Winnipeg, for example, you've got this Bear Clan patrol where you have all of these guys coming together, you know, to walk the streets of Winnipeg to do a whole bunch of things, you know, to make sure that someone isn't freezing in the cold, to um, uh, make sure that uh, women are safe that are on the streets or precariously housed. And, and that's an initiative that comes from us. And all of the community initiatives where people are trying to focus on decolonization, language revitalization, cultural revitalization, all of these things is the balance that we need to the advocacy that we do. Because if we're only focused on, you know, the resistance part and, and the social justice part, we're not also focusing on ourselves. And I think all of those people who are doing those, you know, shining light um, community-based work really need to be lifted at the same time. They're equally as important, if not more, than the, you know, the warriors on the ground trying to keep our people out of prison. It's when we get our people out of prison, then what? And I think the then what are the people in the communities who are trying to do wraparound services and reintegration and training and language and cultural revitalization. And they are true heroes. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Pam. I really appreciate this chat. You've dropped so many gems of knowledge that I'm hoping that our listeners will take with them and act upon. Oh, thank you for having me. A couple of things to note before we get into the final interview. First, we assigned a bit of homework before you listen. Don't worry, I think you'll like it. In the show notes, we've linked to a graphic novel called 
Maskawade'e Has a Strong Heart. We'll be speaking about it in detail with the author. Second, we record in Kim's Senate office and we're having a bit of a fan issue. The background noise is kind of annoying, but you'll get used to it. Plus, this interview is a good one. Neil is a Soto artist, graphic novelist, filmmaker, writer, poet, and social service worker. Neil is Eagle Clan and grew up in the Rolling River Reserve in Manitoba. Neil, would you like to introduce yourself in any way? Uh, I, I think you did a, a good job. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, I, I will say that my home reserve is uh, Rolling River, uh, but I grew up in, uh, in Ontario. Uh, I was adopted uh, as part of the 60s scoop which is when uh, the government came in for like about 30 years, would take indigenous children from their families and adopt them to uh, white families uh, across the globe. Uh, and they would uh, do so with uh, like a catalogs of, of children. So your face would be you know, in the catalog and they could say, I want that children, that child, and then you would be adopted out. My parents live uh, on Rolling River and my, my father actually lives on Waywasi Capo, which is a, a neighboring river, but they're all like uh, part of the same tribe. They're just working up in, I think, three different reservations. So Neil, you put together this incredible book. Do you mind telling us a bit about it? Um, okay. So Mashkawade'e is a, basically that translates into having a, a strong heart. S- uh, Senator Kim Pate asked me what I would do if I was going to uh, illustrate like a story uh, about mandatory minimums, uh, specifically women, and how I would go about that. So I thought about it, and over the course of like an afternoon, we, we talked out the ideas. and. What I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to create a, a story that humanized the person. So a lot of the times uh, when the general public sees uh, Native women uh, or Indigenous people in prison, or when they just see uh, stories about Native people uh, in prison or prisoners it's, itself, they tend to not see us as people. So they don't, they don't see like uh, ex-convicts as people, they don't see current prisoners as people or people going, who have been arrested going through the justice system as, as people. There's a, like a, a disconnect. And what I wanted to do with this, this book is, is make that connection again so that when you read it, you'll see this person as a person and not just like a, uh, a statistics, not just as an indigenous woman, not just as a, as a prisoner or someone who's going through the justice system. You'll see her, you'll feel her as a person. So I wanted to bring humanity back to the prisoner. Tell us a bit about the story. What happens? The, the main character is in an abusive uh, relationship for quite a while. Um, she, has a, she has a child, and then as that child grows up, the relationship evolves, uh, and it becomes a, you know, an abusive one with, with her, her husband. Uh, in order to escape uh, the abusive relationship, uh, one day she, during a, a violent alter- altercation with, with the, the husband, uh, he's basically been beating her and she's a doesn't think that she's going to make it and that she's afraid for her her daughter's life so she in the process of defending herself kills her husband so she goes to prison and then in prison discovers like you know her her culture or maintains her culture and her prison sentence is is a a life sentence so she spends a number of years in there uh, and by the end of the by the end of the book she's uh, a very old person getting out of prison and her daughter has, has lived her whole life with her mom being in prison. I think something that hit me as a reader 
was the connection between my emotions as I was reading and the illustration style, the colors that you chose. Can you talk a bit more about that? Um, the the style of, of the art is that's just the way I draw. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, so I've been uh, doing comic books, uh, taking them seriously since I was about eight, maybe 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 eight years old. I started to draw really 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 badly. Um, uh, comic books of, of my own my own creation. Um, and it was like, you know, Spider-Man does something, Superman does something, Batman, you know, really, but they didn't really look like the, uh, anything. Uh, and then later on, uh, I started to tell my, more, my, my, my own stories that were like sci-fi superhero stories. Uh, and over time, I developed my own style, which is like a cross between uh, uh, Jim Lee and uh, Mark Silvestri. Uh, those are uh, big names in the comic book field. Uh, and a couple of the people that I really admire their their, their work. Uh, Jim Lee's very detail oriented and very uh, he likes a lot of shading and hard lines um, for his artwork. And Mark Silvestri is more more soft and fluid, also with with details, but in, in the in the I guess like the the, the shading that he does with, with his uh, his inks. So I kind of blended the two and developed my own over over, over time. I mostly work in uh, black and white medium, pretty much because I like the the, the stark contrast. Of, of that medium and I, I feel that it it, uh, it can invoke a lot more and that color can sometimes take away from from the artwork itself so I was asked to do some color uh, panels in here so I tried to uh, I try to make it so that the color uh, contributed to the overall story and the, and the artwork of whatever panel that it was on so I think yeah the first color panel is like on page four. So I wanted to do just like the the sunset when uh, the main character is looking at the uh, a gravestone, <clears throat> but I didn't want to uh, make it like this really beautiful sunset. I wanted it to be like this this off like a you wanted to know there was a sunset, but it it had it struck like one emotional color. So mm -hmm. I chose like a kind of like a reddish. Uh, sorrowful looking color I guess I'm not, I'm not really good with like the actual names of colors so throughout the book when there is color I'm trying to invoke it uh, a feeling with it so like on, on on the next page you can see uh, the main character she's bruised and bloodied and <clears throat> for this piece I drew like the uh, or I shaded colored in like the the bruisings of her face and and the blood but everything else is in black and white so it's hard to tell that it's a person, <clears throat> but when you do realize it's a person, you realize that it's she's really messed up. So I wanted to convey how, I wanted the reader to look at it and, and to, to feel how wrong it is that, that people do that to other people. But I wanted to be like a connection that, that the reader had to a person and then see the damage that, that the women uh, in the, these abusive relationships go through and why it isn't such a, a uh, an easy thing for them to transition out of uh, and why sometimes in order to, to get out it is a life and death struggle and sometimes they have to take a life in order to escape and then some of the artwork is, is diffused so that's like blurry um, and I did that again because I wanted to uh, to show that memories are sometimes hazy and I wanted to bring focus to like certain parts of, of an image so there's a scene there where, where the main character is looking at a memory of her husband seeing her husband dancing with another woman so I basically just shaded in um, a, a bar scene uh, and left it largely unfocused and unfinished 
uh, and then I drew in uh, and shaded the, the couple dancing because that's what she would be focused on and she wouldn't really see anything else but she would know where she was and, and that's the heart of the message there is that this is a this is something that emotionally and spiritually resonates with the main character and that's that's what I try to do throughout is give these snippets of, of, of things that that the main character would uh, would focus on Neil you speak with such care and affection for this main character it makes me wonder what your personal relationship is to the content of the book or the personal experiences that folks you care about have had ouch <laughs> um okay so very early on uh, on page two uh, I draw a picture of the main character as a child basically looking in a room in horror but I don't I don't show what what she's looking at but that's like a, a memory I have um, as, a, as a young child looking into a, a into a room and and seeing uh, my mom on the floor uh, having been beaten and a man over top of her uh, doing the beating so that's a large part of where I got the inspiration for doing the, the drawings themselves but I also wanted wanted to show that I have always known my mom loves me my, my, my birth mom even though I was taken away at a very young age uh, by, by child and family services and forcibly adopted into a white family I always knew that my mom loved me so I wanted to, to I wanted to show that that love and that, that I wanted to show that in, in, in the story at the end of the story you know, she's reunited with her daughter. And before this interview, we were chatting and you were talking about, you know, the joy that you experienced when your mom came knocking at your door to say, you know, I want to spend time <laughs> with you, right? Uh, yeah. So that's definitely, th that comes through at the end. Well, in the end of the book, um, <clears throat> you see the main character throughout the book, she's, you see her as a, as a young woman. So you're not really sure how much time has passed <clears throat> until a car drives up and so another young woman gets out of the car and then you see the main character close her eyes and she says uh, I remember the scent of her newborn hair and then I've grown old and the main character speaks and says Mindanas uh, I've missed your whole life and uh, in Anishinaabe Moan Nindanas means uh, daughter so like my daughter so the last panel is is her as an old woman saying in shock uh, and awe that she's grown old and that she's telling her daughter that she's missed her whole life. In her in her eyes, she was like uh, trying to protect her daughter from what the courts would have done to her and questioning her and, and treating her as a, as a, like basically a hostile witness for you know, uh, the crown. I know our listeners must be thinking, how can I get a hold of this book? Where is this book? Right now it's in PDF form. What's the future of this graphic novel, Neil? Me, I would love to see this uh, put in, into a book form because I think it's, a, it's an exceedingly important story that needs to get shared and put out there. Uh, not so much because, because I did it, but because I think the message behind it is that 
it paints it paints a picture and it shows people in a, in a different light, a uh, different way that indigenous women are, are, are people, and it explains in in detail the trials and tribulations and and often the uh, the abuse that they go through uh, in their lives, and it, it makes it it makes it a much more complicated story than than what the news media has shown. So Kim, we heard from both Pam and Neil about their thoughts on mandatory minimum sentences. A lot of what they said overlaps with the things that you say, and I'm, I'm wondering what you thought about those interviews. Well, I talk about them. I don't live them, and what we hear is people who are living them every day. Uh, people very close to me have lived them, but that's not my reality. And so I hear them and I think, I don't know how anybody listening to this can't understand why we need to tackle in a very real way the harm, prevent the harm that's being caused by things like mandatory minimum sentences, including for murder, that there are times when we should actually be rethinking whether even a murder charge should be laid, whether it should be prosecuted, and if it if it's gone even through those phases, whether it should should then be sentenced in the way that we have a mandatory minimum sentence. So again, I hope people listen, I hope they think about this, and nothing that any of these folks who you're interviewing are saying is, nobody's saying that there isn't harm done that needs to be remedied, but you know, too often we only focus on one part of that harm, and I think what Pam and Neil have spoken about are the harms that we never usually hear about in those contexts. So in the show notes, we're going to link to Kim's speech on mandatory minimums for folks who are interested in more information. Uh, Once again, we encourage you to call your elected representatives and talk to them about these issues, talk to them about what you've heard, uh, and let's make change on this issue. Thanks for listening to another episode of Appointed. Please rate, subscribe, and link us on Twitter at AppointedPod. Until next time.